Welcome to episode four of the Movies of 1999. My name is Jason Hutchins. And I'm Craig Talbot. And today we are going to be talking about American Movie and The Ninth Gate, which were the two movies that we watched last week. So at the end of today's podcast, we'll be cutting live to today's movie night, where we'll be spinning the bingo ball to find out which movies we'll be talking about in next week's episode. But for now, let's talk about American Movie and The Ninth Gate. Is there anything you wanted to say, Craig, before we get started? Uh, just that it was quite amusing to see everyone's reaction when the, the ball dropped and you announced what the movie was. I've never heard of this movie, not even a little bit. So I think everyone was like, oh, don't know what that is. Yeah, the title was pretty misleading. You know, mm. today's movie is going to be an American movie. Well, of course it is. Yeah, I don't think anybody had watched it before, and it, it, was, it was quite an interesting watch, I must say. But let me just quickly read a synopsis. American Movie is a 1999 documentary directed by Chris Smith, chronicling aspiring filmmaker Mark Borchardt. Yep. What's his name? Mark Borchardt's quest to produce his horror. Borchardt, yeah. Borchardt. So Mark Borchardt's quest to produce his horror short, Coven, in Wisconsin. The film captures Borchardt's struggles with financial constraints and personal challenges alongside a colourful cast of family, friends and locals involved in his project. This humorous and honest portrayal of an independent filmmaker was made, has made American Movie a cult classic in the documentary genre. So Craig, what did you think of American Movie? I, I know I've said this in the podcast before. But this is another movie that I don't think I would have watched if it hadn't been for the format. Mm. Uh, it's definitely a movie that uh, if I had come across it on Netflix or something and started watching it, I reckon I probably would have clicked the back button probably within about the first five minutes. See, I'm the opposite of you. I'm like, this is a movie that I definitely would have watched at the time had I known about it. And I'm just surprised that I, I somehow didn't hear about it until I was researching this project, because this is one of the few movies in my A-list that I hadn't seen before. So okay. I, I put it on the list because everybody talks about this documentary in the context of 1999 films. And doing a bit of reading about it, I thought this is exactly my cup of tea. So it's interesting that, that we differ in that respect. I, I think it was just because the intro is pretty confronting at first. The first probably five minutes is pretty intense, like the way Mark, you know, he sort of carries on and the way he talks and his emotion and all that kind of stuff, which, which continues on throughout the movie. I would have probably looked at that and gone, no, this is too much for me. Well, mm. I can understand, though, no, having known you, that this is something that you would <laughs> like. Um, it's interesting, actually. It, it's actually classified as a documentary, but some uh, websites also classified as a comedy. And I think, uh, I think we definitely saw the comedic aspect. There is that comedic aspect just watching these characters, especially Mark, Mike's best friend. Yeah, so um, you're thinking of, um, you're actually thinking of Mike. He's oh, the, it's he, Mike? He's the, okay. he's, the, he's the drug addict. Mark is the director. So Mark's the alcoholic and Mike's the drug addict. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. 
But ju- just the things that these guys say, they're, they're sort of unwittingly uh, humorous, you know, just, just their behavior and stuff like that. But at the same time, you've got to admire Mark's like quest to make this film because it consumes his life. Uh, for many years, I, I think they made this documentary over two years, but I think Coven was about three years. Three I think years it's about plus. three or four years because in the movie they say that he started it two years earlier mm. and the movie continues, as you say, for at least two, uh, 90, most of 1996 and 1997. So, uh, And I can't remember if there's a section in 1998. But... Yes, I think you're definitely right. It's, it's a, Coven itself has consumed his life for four years, and then he's moved on to his next project, which is the Northwestern movie, which is what this movie opens with, but actually the movie is all about Coven, really. Mm. Most of the movie is about Coven. So they're oh. making Coven to finance the production of Northwestern. Yeah, that's right. Um, interesting little factoid, I know that's my... Job in job in this podcast. Chris Smith is the guy who did the Tiger King uh, documentary series on Netflix, which is pretty well known. Yeah, that was and massive during the pandemic. Like everyone was talking about it. <clears throat> That's right, and it's a similar sort of thing. Sort of pretty interesting character documentary. That one really blew up because the guy and there was a whole thing where. Someone tried to murder him and he ended up in jail and she ended up in trouble and all of that kind of stuff with Tiger King. Did you ever watch it? No, it wasn't my thing. Like this kind of, like honestly, this kind of documentary uh, movie or TV series is not my personal uh, thing, but I can, I, I certainly heard a lot about it at the time. Uh, he's, he, Chris Smith has done a lot of these kinds of documentaries. This is his shtick if you like before this he had done two other documentaries both of which are very similar in style Uh, the very very first one he did was one where he took a work i think it's called working man or something like that and he took he, he literally did a very similar thing where he he took a guy and followed him around i'm just wondering about it do you think that he's exploiting his his subjects in these documentaries i mean is he laughing at them or do you think he has a a soft spot for these oddball characters that are maybe trying to do something meaningful with their lives. To be honest, looking at this movie, I really did feel the editing was probably fairly selective. Given the kind of character that Mark and Mike seem to be, like in real life, they were probably fairly difficult to paint sympathetically because they are alcoholics and drug addicts after all. Mm. But having said that, Mark's passion for his project passion for his life he does come through reasonably positively i would have thought yeah, yeah. he doesn't come through as a complete fall or chris smith definitely could have made this much more funny he could have focused on the funny ex- aspects more mm. and he could have definitely made these guys look a lot worse than he did i think for both of them they actually come out of the movie reasonably well yeah yeah mike shank for example if he didn't like mike shank and he just wanted to make fun of him he didn't have to have him do the music. Mike Shank actually composed all of the music in the movie. And the music was so pretty we see, good, I thought. Yeah, the music is actually very good. And mm. and we see Mike playing his guitar throughout the movie and he actually is he, he actually did a really good job. So I think he was fairly sympathetic to yeah. these two guys. I'm not sure that he was sympathetic to all of the characters, to be honest. Mm. But to those two main characters, I think he was. 
Tom Schimmels comes off as looking a little bit strange. Now, now remind me who Tom was. Tom Schimmels is the actor, the one who gets his head battered into the uh, oh my goodness cupboard and all those <laughs> sorts. Of we should talk about that scene. That's the most ridiculous <laughs> scene. Yeah, like, like the impression that I got, you know, in terms of filmmaking, it looked to me like Mark was fairly self-taught. He had a lot of books on his shelf about filmmaking, and he seemed to be trying to do things by the book. You know, in terms of even doing the ADR, which was another funny scene. In movies, it's quite common to to film stuff on the day, but then re-record all the sound effects and dialogue just so that you can get a nice, clean recording. You'd often do that in a studio, but they had a scene where they'd filmed uh, Mark getting dragged through the muddy ground in a forest. When it came to re-recording the sound effects for that scene, they just went and dragged someone else through the forest. (laughs) That's and right. just recorded and he, the sound. I mean, and he was, it was hilarious watching him running, running along with this big, massive microphone and recorder behind them through the mud. I, I, I felt sorry for his equipment all the way through the movie, the way he, you know. It's interesting, isn't it, in this YouTube age, how different their process was to what we would do now yeah. with cameras and microphones and all of that kind of stuff. His dream of making a movie would be like 10,000 times easier today. He could have made Coven probably in a few months with the kind I, of equipment that you've got now. I think I think even at the time, it was a lot easier to make a movie than the process that he used because they were filming on film that would need to go off and get developed. They then needed to cut it and splice it all together and then re-record all the audio. It's a really laborious process. But even back then, we were starting to get non-linear editing systems. We were starting to get digital video cameras. There's another movie that got released in 1999, which was made on an extremely low budget, also a horror movie, where they used the digital editing and the digital video cameras. And it was a massive smash hit. And Coven could have been that movie, you know, he he just wasn't in the right place at the right time. He was maybe making a movie like it was the 1970s. You know, he was doing a bit of a Spielberg. Yeah. Yeah, very, very much so. I, th- I think you're very much right. And the movie that you're referring to, which shall not be named, um, obviously was extremely successful. It is true that probably the digital camera technology wasn't as easy to work, very expensive, and wasn't as easy to work with at the time. Mm. He was working on a very small budget. He'd obviously learned his techniques by by the book. Literally, he'd probably he gone to the local library. Yeah. He, he literally had gone to the local library and researched how to do this. I did. I felt kind of funny in a way when we watched it because I kind of feel that I kind of felt for him a bit. Like I, I admire his passion and drive mm, to try mm. and get, despite all the obstacles that he faced in his personal life and all those sorts of things. I kind of admired him for that. Mm. I think it is a lot. I do feel that it's a lot easier today. You can pick up a phone and start filming, and you can make a movie so much more easily now. The technology is just there for you to do that. Now, now we should go back to what you were talking about originally with Tom getting his head smashed through the kitchen cabinet, which, which again was, you know, that, that was method. And I, I tell you, they didn't have a fake uh, cabinet door or anything like that. No, like they did modify the cabinet door. Uh, they put grooves in the back of it, apparently, just so that it would break. And after smashing his head into it several times, uh, realised that it wasn't going to work. <laughs> The thing that really amused me about it, though, 
was when they were interviewing Tom about it. He said, oh, I've done this scene before and I'm really not looking forward to doing <laughs> yeah, this scene really again. <laughs> yeah, it's like a year later and they're like, oh, we're going to reshoot this again. I really don't want to do it. Mm. Um, so you have to admire Tom Schimmel's for, for uh, going uh, going through with it. Mm. Eventually they figure out that they had to put bigger, gro- deeper grooves into it so that it would actually break and they mm. actually successfully managed to not break his head somehow. Though they, there is a fair bit of blood and I wasn't completely sure how much of it was fake and how much of it was real blood there, there must in the movie. There real blood mixed in there for sure. Because yeah, it looked like it was. hit that cabinet pretty hard. Um, so it won six small awards and was nominated for another six. So a number of smaller uh, awards, including it did very, very well at the Sundance Film Festival, which is where I believe it was released. It only earned, though, $1.17 million at the box office. Mm. So I'm kind of hoping that um, its low-budget look was because it was really low-budget because it didn't actually make a lot of money. A um, little bit of a sad note here. Uh, Mike Shank actually passed away from cancer in 19, uh, 2022. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and, and he had been clean for like the entire time after this movie. He'd, he'd yes. given up drugs and everything, yeah. Yeah, so he was a recovering alcoholic and drug addict, mm. which is talked about quite a bit in the movie. I felt a little bit bad because I kind of did laugh at him a bit in the movie, but he has a condition called reduced affect, which is where he struggled. People struggle to show emotion on their face, yeah. and you could definitely see that in his when he spoke. Mark Borchardt, this is a little factoid, says the word "man" one hundred and fifty-one times in the movie. Man, yeah, he says it a lot, doesn't he? <laughs> it does. <laughs> so I actually wanted to know how many times he swore in the movie because I reckon that would have been up there as well. Yeah, for sure. There was a few of those. The film was actually released on VHS uh, in 2001, a little bit later, and then re-released again on DVD by Sony, who had the rights to it. And there's a special edition, Jason, which I thought you might be interested in because it has a commentary by Chris Smith, Sarah Price, who's one of the uh, producers, Mark Borshaw and Mike Schenk, and Interestingly, it has the short film Coven and 22 deleted scenes. Now, the scenes that got to the movie were pretty funny. So it would be really quite fascinating to see what the deleted Mm. scenes are. Yeah, one to Um, watch for sure. I was fascinated by the fact that this is actually a movie that was co-produced by Michael Stipe. And I don't know Ah, if you know who Michael Stipe is, uh, Jason. He's R.E.M. That's correct. So at the time, uh, R.E.M. was a pretty big band. And Michael Stipe was trying to get into it. He, he'd been trying to get the Hollywood system to produce movies for quite some time. That's interesting. And he actually is... Re- he, so have you heard of the movie... Oh, well, you can't mention that one. I'll have to bleep that. But yes. Oh, sorry. Oh, is that one of ours, is it? Uh, yeah. But, okay. But Michael right. Stipe produced that as well. Is that, is that what you're yes, saying? Yes, he, he was the producer. That's actually his most famous movie that he produced. So this... On Rotten Tomatoes, this movie actually does really, really well. It gets 94%. Mm from the critics, and 90% audience participation. It is absolutely loved by critics. Roger Ebert absolutely loved this movie. Uh, Andy Goodman, Amy Goodman, I'm sorry, called the film an inspiration for filmmakers everywhere. And Kevin Thomas of the LA Times uh, thought it was a very funny movie. Uh, Glenn Lovell, who is a critic from Variety, called the film ambitious and wildly funny and a tribute to the Midwestern filmmakers. So they all took it pretty positively. Yeah, I think if you had watched it 10 years earlier, by, by that I mean like in the 1980s or the 1970s, it mm. probably would have fit 
better. Yes. It kind of, like, I, I, I actually agree with you. It kind of felt like a movie from an earlier era. Yeah. yeah not 1999. He was using old fashioned filmmaking techniques. Um, yes. There were definitely yeah. better, there was better equipment available at the time that he was making uh, Coven. What did you think, like at the end of the documentary, they do show some clips from Coven. What did you think after watching them? go through the process of making it um i think he I, th- I really liked the black and white style that he was addicted to i don't know whether he did that because of cost or because that was what what his artistic vision was but i mean one thing you can say about mark borshard is he definitely had a vision for what he wanted mm. and he was very very passionate about that i don't know that he was particularly good at communicating that he would get quite grumpy with people and mm. and and I think the movies of this era, the movies that we're watching uh, as part of this podcast, they really are director-led movies, which you get less of these days, I think. Like the director had a lot of control and the director could really push back against the studio for the, for the bigger movies that we're going to watch this year. So I, so I, think, I think you're right there. And I think you can even see that in the, in the next movie that we're going to talk about mm, as well. Mm. But um, during the documentary as well, there's a scene where he's watching the Oscars, like Billy Crystal presenting the Academy Awards or whatever. And I think in, they have a little snippet of Billy Crystal's speech, basically saying, who, who are all these directors? Where are they coming from? Where are these movies coming from? Because it, it, there were a lot of independent movies making their way into Hollywood and, and winning awards at the Oscars. So was, I think the Oscars at the time, like Billy Crystal is probably the high watermark for the Oscars, mm-hmm. if I can be so bold. Uh, and I think part of that, and I think you're onto something there, is that the directors, the actors, and so on, don't have as much control over what happens. It's much more of a... Yeah, it doesn't seem... It's that almost like we've, we've gone back to that studio system from the 1930s where the studios control, focus groups control, mm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Look, this movie, if it had gone through a focus group, there is no way it would have been made. Well, you know, like if it, it just wouldn't have happened. You, uh, you could say that about half of the movies on my on my list of fifty two A movies. I mean, you just cross them off straight away. Would the Iron Giant have been made? Probably would, not. Not in the way that it was made. Would a Simple Plan have been made? Simple Plan probably would have been made, but as a TV series, I reckon. Oh yeah, yeah. It would be a TV series now. Yeah, and it would have been like twenty-two episodes on Netflix, and then they would have dropped it after one season. One thing about this nineteen ninety-nine era, which I think is worth saying, is this is still very much movie-first era. Yes, isn't it? Yes, everybody wanted to work on movies. All the best people worked on movies, and I think now that's not the case. It was the very beginning of prestige television because you had The West Wing and The Sopranos. They, yes. they were just in their first seasons, I think, maybe, or something like that. Uh, both of them started in this year. Yeah, yes. yeah. But that was the beginning of a new era that I guess over the, yes. over the following decade as, as we started to get, because I remember we, we first got those, what do you call them, PVRs? PVRs. The ones with hard That's drives right. in? Yes. Um, and then you had that era of a lot of digital downloads and illegal downloads yes. and things like that. Yeah. I think it's... Little bit later than 1999, but oh, yeah, yes, yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah. like the following decade, um, but then you got the, streaming and and honestly, everywhere. the the internet is what the internet things like PVRs being able to stream, uh, DVD, I think, changed a lot of things because it wasn't quite the hit to a movie to go straight to DVD that it was to go straight to VHS, yeah. 
They really pimped up the DVDs as well. I think I've mentioned that before, like you say, with the commentary tracks, mm. like little featurettes and things like that. They were really made for movie lovers, the DVDs. Yes. Also, I think this is the era, you know, prior to this time period, if you wanted to see a movie in any sort of quality, you had to go to the movies because mm. VHS was you know, rubbish, really. And and now with Laserdisc and DVD, you've now got these very high quality experiences. You can have your own projector, you can have your yeah, own yeah. seating, you can have your own, and and that's pretty common. Like especially in the US, you know, middle class people often will have their own home theater room in yeah. Australia. I was going to say yeah. that for a while there, if you were building a new house, like they would put a theater room in in the plan. Oh, it's still it's almost still default. a thing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's still a thing. Uh, many, many houses. Um, <laughs> interestingly, you talked about ADR earlier. Yeah. I didn't know this, but apparently ADR does not stand for additional dialogue recording, which I must admit I thought it meant. Me too, it's yeah. Apparently, it, it's um, automated dialogue replacement. So this... there must have been a system whereby they could sync up the audio and replace it automatically, I guess. It must have made a big difference to movie making, I'm guessing, because... Certainly watching the process that Mark went through, oh, my goodness, I do not know that I would have the patience to do that. I tell you what, Mike had the best scream when he screamed as they were doing the ADR. He did this blood-curdling scream. And then when you watch the um, clips from Coven at the end and you see where they use that scream, it's just hilarious, but it fits the movie so well. He's kind of the character that you kind of root for through the movie in, Mm. in in a way. Now, one person that we haven't mentioned, because, of course, uh, Mark's brothers are interviewed in the movie and his parents and things like that. But the role that his uncle plays in the the whole production, his uncle is in Coven. He financed the movie. He was trying to get him to finance Northwestern as well. So what did you think about the uncle? Was it Uncle Bill? Yeah, I think Uncle Bill had obviously had a very hard life, Mm. had made some money somewhere along the way, had lots and lots of money, but lived in this very, very poor trailer park, even though he had, for $1999, Mm. $280,000 US would have bought you an incredibly beautiful house, I would have thought, Mm. Um, yet he chose to live in a trailer park and keep his money in the bank. He definitely looked like a guy who was old before his time. Yeah, which, I know what you mean. You know, wasn't wasn't uncommon at that time. People who drank heavily, smoked heavily, um, you know, worked in fairly tough environments. Do you think he looked like a man who'd worked pretty hard to get it, to make his money? Do you think Mark was exploiting him, or do you think he had a more honest relationship with his uncle? I think his uncle thought that he he was being exploited, but I don't think Mark actually did. I no. think Mark was just really passionate. Mark could have manipulated him much more yeah. if he had wanted to, and he didn't. Yeah, I agree. And he was pretty genuine about paying him back about, you know, look, I'm going to sell these 3,000 VHSs and I'm going to make the money back and you're going to get your money back. Yeah. I don't feel like he did. Ex- he's sitting there at the bank and he's explaining things to the guy. Mm. That What I found interesting that it, his uncle played this role of the old man who didn't understand what was going on. Yeah. But given the relationship between Mark, his dad, and his uncle, his uncle can't have been that much older. He looked a lot older mm. because I thought it was his grandfather for most of the movie. Yeah, yeah. And, and I thought, oh, he must be in his 80s or his 90s or something. And 
And and then it's like, well, no, he can't actually be that old. He must only be 10 years older than the dad who doesn't yeah. look that old. Yeah. So, but I don't think he really was as dumb as he. Yeah, he, yeah. I, I think a lot of that. And again, it may have come down to editing, I think. They chose to edit the more interesting parts of what he said. And I guess that's what happens when you're shooting a documentary and you're shooting two years worth of footage. They must have had hundreds of hours of footage and you've then got to figure out what story do we tell and then you edit selectively to to tell that story. But I did like the fact that they didn't exploit Uncle Bill. I mean, he's sitting on a mountain of cash Mm. and instead of taking advantage of him, because we're talking about people who are alcoholics, drug addicts and addicted to gambling as well. Yes. Yeah. And, And they didn't try and get money to fuel those addictions. He just wanted to make his movie. I think there was probably a time when Mark could have been accused of that. I think there's clearly a time in his life, you know, the whole thing about the vodka, him and uh, Mike sharing vodka nights and those sorts of things. But to his credit, he seemed to be trying to pull his life back together and make something of himself. He says that over and over again. I don't want to be nobody. I want to be somebody. That's the plot plot of Northwestern. The movie that he wants Mm. to make is is basically his autobiography. It's it's somebody rescuing themselves by becoming a writer or something like that, wasn't it? Right, yes, something like that. We we don't actually go into a lot of detail of Northwestern after the first part of the movie. So Um, apparently that movie actually, even though he had the money and all that kind of stuff, that that movie is still yet to be made So uh, or to be completed. So... That was interesting. Yeah, I think there's a streak of perfectionism in Mark. Yes. He passionately wants to work on this project, but he does not want to finish it because I, to finish I it think would that, be to to deliver something that's not perfect, you know? so I think you've hit the nail on the head there, mm. Jason, exactly. He's very much a perfectionist. Mm. He wants everything to be exactly as he sees it in his head. He's one of these people who's got a very clear picture in his head of everything that he wants to do and wants to achieve and to actually finish the movie would have been very difficult i think even finishing coven was really hard for mm, him mm. he looked almost embarrassed and uh un- very uncomfortable standing on the stage talking about that movie and yeah. i suspect he probably wasn't happy with it so that's american movie it turns out we did have a lot to talk about and we're going to move on to the ninth gate which is the movie that i paired with american movie Basically along the lines that it's another, it's, a, it's an actual horror movie or supposed to be. So The Ninth Gate is a supernatural thriller directed by Roman Polanski, starring Johnny Depp as Dean Corso, a rare book dealer. Hired to authenticate a book allegedly written by Satan, Corso is drawn into a world of occult practices, deceit and danger. As he investigates, he encounters mysterious figures and realises that others are also pursuing the book's dark secrets. The film combines mystery, horror, and a suspenseful atmosphere, highlighting Corso's perilous journey into the supernatural. So that's The Ninth Gate. What did you think of this movie, Craig? It's um, called a neo-noir film. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, Roman Polanski is a very controversial figure. One could almost say he's probably cancelled in this day and age, but... But Hollywood didn't cancel him until 2018 when he was expelled from the Academy. Uh, the main writer on this movie is a guy called Arturo Perez Reverte, and I really hope I got that right. Sounds good. Uh, uh, I think Frank Langella, who plays Balkan, the rich entrepreneur, I suppose you could say, the book collector mm. who employs 
Dean Corso in this movie uh, probably gives an excellent performance. I also really liked Emmanuel Sainer, I hope that's her name, who's only known in this movie as the girl. Right. Um, she doesn't actually have a name or anything in the movie. I actually liked her performance. I wasn't as impressed by some of the other characters. How about the twins? The twins were quite good. The twins. Yeah, interestingly, well, I was going to come to the twins. Yeah, yeah. The twins is actually the same bloke. Yes. So he's actually one of the uh, assistant producers of the mm-hmm. movie, and they just dragged him into this role, and they did some, inter- uh, for the time, some interesting work to make him appear as the same person. He's actually in the movie in four different character roles, mm-hmm. believe it or not. There is one thing that really struck me about the movie that I I have to talk about. I hope you'll indulge me here. Go for it. Go for it. Uh, Is that these people are all book collectors and they take books extremely seriously, right? So Mm -hmm. very, very serious, right? These are incredibly valuable, rare books, right? And yet every single time Johnny Depp is handling a book, what's he doing? Smoking. He smokes over the top of the book and and then... You know, the two uh, booksellers that that were in the movie mm, as well. Mm. There's actually a scene where ash from his cigarette falls on this incredibly rare, valuable book written by Lucifer. Mm. And they're just like, it, the camera is actually showing you the ash burning into the page. Mm. And you're like, uh, the whole time I'm, I'm just like, because I'm married to a librarian, obviously, I'm just like, oh, my God, what are you people doing? Like, I don't know whether that was a deliberate thing or, or not, but what did you think of Johnny Depp's talent of evaluating the authenticity of a book by flicking through it and smelling the pages and going, yep, this one's, this one's authentic? <laughs> there were some weird acting choices in this movie. I think he played it yeah. in a very sort of dour way. The character of Jane Corso wasn't completely convincing. Because Polanski is known for Chinatown, which is a movie that I love with Jack Nicholson, um, very much a noir detective movie. I really think they were trying to channel some of that in The Ninth Gate. When I first sat down to watch The Ninth Gate, I only got about halfway through it and I fell asleep, I must admit. I thought it was the most boring movie because it it moves really slowly and and there really aren't very many supernatural elements at all. It is more of a detective sort of movie. And I rewatched it the following day, sort of in that mindset that I'll treat yep. this like a noir detective movie. And then I, I think I appreciated it a lot more in terms of mm. the way that the cinematography was servicing the story and, and the way that these scenes were. There's not a lot of quick cuts and there's not a lot of action. You know, there's these long drawn out scenes um, with still camera shots and things like that. And I think that yep. suits the detective genre a lot more because you're you're looking for clues and things as you're watching i think he's called a book detective at Mm. one point in the movie by one of the characters there is a there are some horror elements but it really waits all the way to the end of the Mm. movie to to really get into the horror elements like probably the last 15 minutes Mm. maybe it was a movie that was trying really hard to be scary but didn't quite no no, it wasn't scary at any really really at any point I really thought the character of the girl was probably the most fascinating one in the movie and probably intended to be so because she was the only one that wasn't fully explained even at the end of the movie. I didn't mind watching this one. I actually kind of enjoyed it. There was enough variety of scenes. The story was slow, particularly in the first hour, I would say, but it moved along reasonably well. Just that discordance of 
silly little things like the cigarettes and also the fact that Balkan has this massive library with behind glass doors with security and all that kind of stuff. And then his password was literally 666. Yeah. And you see him input it. And I noticed <laughs> that Johnny Depp actually noticed him put it in. Yes. And I thought, oh, he's going to come back and break into this library because it's got a ridiculously easy mm. passcode. They were kind of trying really hard to make it scary, but there was a bit of comedy in there. I actually laughed out loud in several sequences of the movie. Now, in, um, in terms of the number 666, we're talking about the movies of 1999, and of course 999 yes. is inverted yes. 666. So I, I was going to mention that. Oh, were you? So I think at the time mm. people did... People were aware of that. And a, a couple yeah. of the movies on my F list, uh, mm. End of Days and Stigmata, really were based around that idea as well, that 1999 yes. was a, that, an that, evil that year. That was actually, yeah, I was, you, you've stolen one of Sorry. my factoids, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, well, that's well, you fine. You it so well. So. Yeah, yeah. So there is, there, 1999 is uh, 666 inverted. It was definitely a thing at the time. Mm. There was definitely a big end of days feeling in 1999 yeah. actually interestingly the don quixote book do you remember that from the beginning of the movie yeah. where he's assessing it and he he pulls a bit of a swifty on the people there um that's a real thing so that particular edition is uh considered the best and most beautiful edition of that particular book this is an incredibly valuable book and he's carrying it in this little bag through the rain through, you know, all sorts of conditions. Like he gets absolutely soaked at one point and he's just got it in this little um, bag, which is apparently called a musette, which is actually an ammunition bag that was used by French soldiers in the 30s. He does not look after his books and yet this is his job. Well, so he, that's he's also a bit of a con man, isn't he? I, I mean, that's his character yeah. at the beginning. So so maybe he's not as into books as he, he claims he is, but... Any other facts, Craig? Because I've got a few and I don't want to steal your thunder. There was a little bit of an interesting thing in that the girl character, she was reading a book called How to Make Friends and Influence People. Right. Now, this book is quite famous, but a little thing I didn't know about it, and I don't know if this was a deliberate, it must have been a deliberate call out. Charles Manson also read and used this book. And he, of course, orchestrated the killing of Sharon Tate, who was Roman Polanski's wife. Mm. And that was quite a big deal back in the 70s. Yeah, so, if you've seen Once mm. Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, the Tarantino movie, that's all about that. It's one of the Tarantino revenge porn um, movies. Um, I'm going I'm to go right deep into the weeds here on this little factoid. Okay. Do, do you remember the scene where the oranges are bouncing down the stairs? Yes, yes. It made me well, think apparently, of father. Well, apparently that's a bit of a Polanski thing. He likes the old oranges bouncing down the stairs because he has similar scenes in other movies. Uh, notably, The Tenant, there's a bag of oranges bouncing down the stairs and the camera sits on it for quite a long mm. time. So I don't know what it is about oranges and bouncing down the stairs. Uh, it's apparently a thing for him. I'm we, not quite sure why. but try and interpret that. But in terms of how to win friends and influence people or whatever, that was being read by the girl, wasn't it? This mysterious yes. character, yeah. Yes. So, so I think that maybe was a hint to her character, if mm. if you're comparing her to Manson. So, one fact that I went down a rabbit hole on in this movie is the opening shot is just the Manhattan skyline. 
Yes. And then it slowly pulls through the apartment window into the interior of the apartment. And of course, Raymond Polanski can't film in America. This was all shot in France. And, and I guess, again, that's his little snub to America or something like that. Like I can still make an American movie or, or whatever. Yep. But I'm like, how did they do that shot of the Manhattan skyline? They mention in Internet Movie Database or Wikipedia or something that they use yep. this thing called translite material. Right. Which I'd no, you sort of notice it in a lot of movies, but I'd never really found out about it before. But what they do is they, they take a photograph, a very high-resolution photograph of a cityscape or something like that, and then they can hang it outside of the windows in, in their interior sets. But then they can light it uh, in different ways. And there's a great video on YouTube that you can watch by one of the manufacturers of this translite material where they have, it's a transparent sheet. And on one side, they've, they've got a photograph of a night scene. So the city at night and the other, other side is a photograph from midday. Yep. And then they can just adjust the lighting in real time to make it look like any time of day. So they can go dawn through the middle of the day, dusk. Uh, midnight or whatever so it's very easy without changing the set or without doing any blue screen or anything like that to have a image outside of the window that's appropriate for the time of day and then you don't have to worry about weather if you're shooting over several days and things like that so that was quite fascinating okay. yeah so anyway that was yeah, my little I, geek out uh, moment can i ask Jase, what was your general impression of this movie after having watched it all the way through did you um, I, I quite enjoyed it uh, in the end. Like, like I said, the first time I watched it, I got halfway through and I'd, I'd had enough because I thought it was so boring. But that's because I'd set my expectations wrong. I was expecting to be watching a horror movie mm. and just nothing seemed to be happening. When I rewatched it in the mindset of, okay, this is a movie like Chinatown. This is someone investigating a mystery. A lot of the slow-moving scenes like fit that genre a, a, a lot better, and I, I enjoyed it a lot more on the second watch. Yeah, I, I, I didn't mind it either. I actually enjoyed it more than I thought I was going to, particularly by the end. I think probably the second half of the movie is stronger than the first half. Mm -hmm. In a way, it was an inconclusive ending, but I suppose it was appropriate to the movie. He's walking off into the bright light mm -hmm. of the castle, and that's the end Be of the Being movie. admitted through the ninth gate, basically. Yes, that's right. Mm. I don't think it's half as bad as American movie. Right, right, in terms of the review so scores. Yeah. One's a 90% score, the other one's a 45% score or thereabout. I don't think it's half the movie. Did you, I think it's, did you read any of the reviews? Uh, no, I didn't. I must say I didn't. It got some pretty harsh reviews. And I, uh, I can imagine that some of that is just the fact that Polanski directed it. If people can't sort of separate the artist from the person, then that would definitely knock down review scores. Yeah, I think one of the things as well, just scanning through the uh, the comments from the reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, I think what happened to you also probably happened to a lot of the critics in that they were expecting a horror film right? and it wasn't. I, I'd, I'd be interested to know what uh, Margaret and David thought of it if they indeed indeed did actually review this movie. Um, I don't know if they did. I, I believe they did. Let me see if I can. If you go to our um, letterboxed list, 
and look yeah. at the movies of 1999, the Ninth Gate will have yes. So Margaret gave it two stars. David gave it three stars. Roger Ebert, I found his review, so he only gave it two out of four. Mm. I don't know. For me, maybe it was Johnny Depp that didn't quite. Well, yeah, he make... he was trying to channel Jack Nicholson, I think, um, playing a hard boiled detective rather than. You know, someone who's in a supernatural horror movie. Yeah, I don't know. Did you ever see him in Channy Twenty One Jump Street? No, the TV. He's like breakout TV series or whatever it was. The character is very similar. It's a similar role, to be honest. But this is a movie that John Roman Polanski tried really hard to make better than it ended up being. It kind of felt like that. Well, that was the ninth gate. And before we leave you today, let's cut live to today's movie night where we'll spin the bingo ball and find out which movies we'll be talking about next week. So now it's over to you, future Jason. Okay, and here we are at the movie night. Is it number four? We've, we've got a bunch of people here and Dana's ready to spin the bingo ball. Let's go. We're looking for a low number today, I think. Looking for a low number. Yep, Look, that's well mixed. It's well mixed. And now a number's coming out and lean over and tell us what number it is. Number 50. Number 50 is the Cider House Rules. In other parts of the world, young men leave home and travel far and wide in search of a promising future. The only reason people journey here is for the orphanage. They wanted a girl, girl. Nobody ever wants me. I came as a physician to the abandoned children and unhappily pregnant women. Good night, you princes of Maine, you kings of New England. So I became the caretaker of many, father of none. Well, in a way, there was one. His name was Homer Wells. And it was always clear to me that he was a special boy. You are a skilled and gifted surgeon. I'm not a doctor. I haven't been to medical school. I haven't even been to high school. Doubtless you will let me know when you're going to find a more gratifying life. I was wondering if you could give me a ride. I'm enjoying my life here. I'm enjoying being a lobsterman and an orchardman. In fact, I believe I'm being of some use. I'm shipping out today. It gives me some peace of mind knowing you're here, keeping an eye on things. What are you doing with that candy, Homer? She's the nicest and most beautiful girl I've ever known. Sound like you're in trouble already, huh? Mm-hmm. I think we may have lost them to the world. Miramax Films presents Toby Maguire, Charlize Theron, and Michael Caine. I can help. In a new film by director Lasse Hallstrom, a story about how far we must travel. Whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life, I do not know. To find the place where we belong. The Cider House Rules. And that has been paired up with Mansfield Park. So, there you go. <laughs> so, so, Craig's looking forward to that. Mariah was married on Saturday, being prepared for matrimony by a hatred of home, by the misery of disappointed affection, and contempt of the man she was to marry. Oh, please. Marriage is indeed a manoeuvring business. For everyone who loved Emma and Sense and Sensibility comes the story Jane Austen loved even more. Fanny Price was a poor relation sent to the estate of her wealthy cousins. I was told to drop her at the front entrance of Mansfield Park. Then drop her. 
We must prepare ourselves for gross ignorance and a certain vulgarity of manner. Yes, I'm a wild beast. It's a world of great luxury where refined manners are the order of the day. Well, you certainly seem a dreary lot. She's there to learn the ways of proper society. But this spirited heroine is about to turn the tables on them. Your entire person is entirely agreeable. Yes, well, tonight I agree with everyone. And now, love is about to put everyone to the test. Which gentleman among you am I to have the pleasure of making love to? Would that more women were like you. Edmund loves you, Fanny Price. Henry Crawford has asked to take your hand in marriage. Dance like an angel, Fanny Price. Keep your wig on. <laughs> She's delightful. You have created sensations which my heart has never known before. What's he like? A rake. Yes, please. Miramax Films proudly presents... I've loved you all my life. Fanny, you are killing me. Mansfield Park. A film by Patricia Rosema. I know. And back to you in the studio. Okay, thanks for that. So they are the two movies we'll be watching next week. Um, just again, as always, looking forward to the next movie night and seeing our next two movies. They look uh, as interesting as always. Yeah, they've, they've been fun so far, but uh, I know for a fact that that's not going to last forever. <laughs> so, <laughs> so let's leave it there. So we'll see you all on next week's show. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> Wisconsin native Mark Borchardt has been making amateur films since he got an out-of-focus bolex at the age of 14. He has many unreleased projects, some finished, some unfinished. It is the American dream, lived out by the most unlikely candidate, and it's fascinating. A prize winner at Sundance last year is a heart and at the same time a ruthlessness in its depiction of Mark Borchardt, filmmaker David. Well, yes, there is. I mean, it's a good word, ruthless, because in a way, it, it is a film about exploitation on all kinds of levels. I and mean, the documentary exploits that oh, as well. Indeed, yeah. I mean, Mark's making an exploitation movie in Coven. Why isn't it called Coven? <laughs> What's your score for Three this? and a half. I'm giving it four, actually.